Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 22 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about telling the truth. I will drop my normal loquacious lead in and just say I'm incredibly excited to talk to Lucy Caldwell today. For those of you who don't follow Lucy, first and foremost, you're making a mistake. You should follow her on social media. She is a savvy political operator and has previously managed a presidential campaign. She's knows Washington inside and out, but I wouldn't give her the dubious distinction of saying she's a Washington insider. She's an American, not just some Washington insider. Uh, Unless, Lucy, you prefer to have that moniker. I don't know. You tell me. Oh, Miles, I'm not just an an American. I'm an Arizonan. I'm a I'm a Westerner. <laughs> right. So right. I I eschew any any characterization of of being a Washington insider. So so I I appreciate that. <laughs> Even better, and I don't know if you would self describe this way. I mean, you're kind of cut from the cloth of the John McCain Maverick style Arizonan. Is that right? I mean, I'm more like a, like a Goldwater girl born a few decades too late, even. Uh, but yes, <laughs> yes. Arizona, even that's better. A, that is a, it's a, it's a misunderstood, it's a misunderstood, it's a misunderstood state. Uh, there is a lot of, a lot of free thinking in Arizona and a lot of um, don't look over my fence and I won't look over yours and we can all make the best decisions for ourselves. So I'm showing my bias. I have a lot of I have a lot of uh, love for my home state, even though I am a swamp creature now. Well, you say Arizona is misunderstood. Some people in this political environment have also called it the cauldron of crazy because not because the people of Arizona are all crazy, but there is a lot of radical candidates running uh, for federal office from the state right now, which I'll get to. And I want to ask you about that because you've got better perspective than anyone we've had on the podcast on, you know, those races, what that means, what it signifies about our politics. Um, But I want to get the elephant in the room out of the way on January 6th. Everyone's talking about the select committee, the hearings, what they mean. Uh, you, You know, a lot of these members of Congress that are on the select committee, you've known many of them for years you know a lot of the people who are commentating on this. You're a prominent commentator on this. Give us your take. What do you think the impact has been so far of the select committee's revelations? And, and do you think the hearings are going to move the needle? I wish my answer were different. I do not think they're going to move the needle in, in a meaningful way. I think that the timing is not quite right. I also think that... People who could be moved by this are already in the camp of people who've been moved by this because they were moved by this on January 6th in the aftermath, in the second impeachment trial. And so while I don't, I don't think that this is a waste of time or that the select committee um, isn't doing, you know, yeoman's work or that this isn't very useful for other reasons, like really establishing clearly an an even crisper historical record of what went on. I unfortunately just cannot get into the headspace of thinking that this is going to move the needle for voters ahead of November. Um, And maybe it's cynical to go to the immediate question of what are the implications of this on the next cycle, 
but that's where my head goes. But I'd be happy to be convinced otherwise. Maybe you will convince me otherwise. <laughs> well, uh, no, I'm going to have you convince me. What do you think would move the needle? I mean, let's talk about it. We're, we are in a more tribal environment than ever. And there were people in the lead up to these hearings saying, you know, this will be like the Watergate hearings in the 70s. Full disclosure, I wasn't alive when the Watergate hearings were on the air. But it strikes me there was just a handful of television networks those hearings were on every single channel and the discourse had not yet been completely poisoned by leaks and revelations in the lead up to that. So it really impacted like the public consciousness. Uh, now it's a totally different situation. Everyone's seemingly made up their minds on what happened on January 6th. Though, so what, what do you think, Lucy, could move the needle electorally when it comes to the insurrection that happened in the U.S. Capitol? That's a good question. I'm not convinced that there is a lot that could move the needle because, of course, for example, we already know that there were adults in the room who were saying to Donald Trump, you've lost the election, give it up. And it didn't it didn't have an impact on him. Maybe something more explicit in terms of, for example, Donald Trump being really clear in his own language internally and getting it on the record somewhere that he was explicitly in, encouraging insurrection and violence, or that he was, say, explicitly encouraging voters, his supporters who were out there to hang Mike Pence, whatever. But we are so close to that anyway. We've heard the phone call of Donald Trump asking Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to go find more votes. We've we've heard so much from folks like Bill Barr about how they felt that Trump had lost his grip on reality. And and I think that ultimately one of the big challenges is that the the way that voters and Americans who are watching the hearings or reading about them have become oriented around this issue based on how the select committee has positioned itself and where it exists in the larger congressional ecosystem is that there is not a, and then what, right? And the, and then what would be, what are we going to do other than talking again about how terrible and shameful this was to head this off in future cycles? So one of those things would be something like say, passing a updated version of the electoral count act, which would be one safeguard against the kind of stuff that went on on January 6th around certifying the election. That is a thing that also could have happened. So the, the committee has not done a good job of linking its work and its important work, and I support it, to a, a tangible action item to American voters other than you should be outraged by this. But at this point, they've been told they should be outraged several times. So we can get outraged again, but probably it's the same old people getting outraged, not new folks. Like us. <laughs> yes, we are the, like we're the little group of people being outraged. I had one person say to me, who is a, a registered independent kind of free thinking person, that for mm. her hearing the testimony of Barr, and this is a person who still now, you know, like never voted for Trump, but but would still be willing to support Republicans now. Um, she's not in the burn it all to the ground camp, I would say. But, but, but she said something interesting to me, which was that, that 
hearing hearing that people in the there were adults in the room right like bill barr even ivanka trump made her feel more i mean that that this that made it more compelling and i said well doesn't that actually in a way create a permission structure for people in your voter persona to go support republicans right does that mm. doesn't that almost in a way undermine the 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 work of the committee it would suggest that you know trump really is Trump, Donald J. Trump, the man, is a unique threat and that we can trust that this wouldn't happen again as long as we don't have that guy. Right? To me, that, that, that there's, that's dangerous if that's the impression that people are left with because it could accidentally cause people to think, oh, well, we're just going to go back to how it was, which is what a lot of people, that's what people like Mitch McConnell want, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so then I, I'd say this um are we at higher risk or lower risk of an insurrection level event happening again after the dust settles on all of this i think we're at a higher risk i think we're at a higher risk uh federally and i think that we are at a higher risk of ugly political violence breaking out all over the country in races at lower levels of of government what do you think I think we lost you for just a second there, Lucy. Can you hear me? There we go. Now we got you. I, I said I, I think that we're at a higher risk. I think we're at a higher mm -hmm. risk of not only a repeat, but I think we're also at a higher risk of political violence breaking out in states across the country in races down the ballot, governors' races, uh, secretaries of states' races, other highly contentious races where we're seeing the same kinds of dynamics play out. I'd like to be wrong about that, but what do you think? Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about the 2024 presidential and how that could play out. There's a lot of scary scenarios that could follow the, uh, you know, that could check those boxes that you just listed. But even before that, we of course have the midterms and a lot of really contentious races and uh, I'd mentioned Arizona earlier, your home state. You're a self-described Goldwater girl. Um, Arizona seems to be ground zero right now for some of those races. I mean, you know, Ron Watkins, the presumptive founder of QAnon, you know, entered the congressional race there. There's all sorts of people who are falling all over themselves to seem as MAGA as possible. You know, the Republican frontrunner for governor, Carrie Lake, has pictures of Trump behind her at almost every event. And photo op, I mean, it's getting it's getting really surreal. I mean, it's sort of epitomizing this cult of personality. Um, what are you seeing, you know, in the state and also nationally in the midterms in terms of the the trend lines either away from or back towards those authoritarian impulses that we thought we shook off in 2020? Yeah, it's completely wacko in Arizona on the Republican <laughs> side now. It is completely yeah. wacko. You've got Carrie Lake, um, who very likely could become the Republican nominee. Arizona's primary is in August. And if she becomes the nominee, I've seen a lot of polling showing that she wins statewide, which is terrifying. Um, in the Secretary of State's race, you have a crowded field of Republicans. One of them is a guy named Mark Fincham, who actually participated in January 6th. Then you have a woman named Shauna Bullock, who is like the Ginny Thomas of Arizona. I kid you not. Um, and, and just <laughs> up and down the ballot, 
the choices are not great. One of the reasons it's so bad in Arizona on the Republican side is that you said Arizona is ground zero for the crazy. Obviously, that's true. But it is actually also ground zero for Steve Bannon's precinct strategy. And this is when I say Steve Bannon's precinct strategy, it's actually ground zero for this strategy called the precinct strategy that Steve Bannon decided to adopt. And that is Mm -hmm. an approach that says, okay, we need to look at every single layer and level of government. We need to get people in precinct committee seats. We need to get people as election watchers. We need to get people in, in every single seat that we can fill, get a warm body into that seat. And that has happened. And so in Arizona, for instance, even in a place like Maricopa County, which is where Metro Phoenix is, it's where more than 60% of the vote is in Arizona, that county has seen an insane uptick in precinct committee people. And they're incredibly organized. And, and so I think that one of the mistakes that, that sometimes we make people um, who are focused on things like, say, the January 6th hearings, is that in contrast, Republicans are really, really focused on building bottom from the bottom ground up strategies. And they're doing it right under our noses. And, and so, you know, we have to start addressing those systemic issues. This is happening in a, in a lot of battleground states. It's also happening in the state of Michigan, where the Republican Party chair is a woman who herself is a Trump acolyte. And her husband, she and her husband were among the fake electors that were sent as alternate electors. There is, her husband is likely is going to become Michigan Speaker of the House, right? And meanwhile, Trump is, is endorsing state legislative candidates, right? While, while we're all sort of wringing our hands about who's going to control college, is making endorsements in, you know, your legislative district that has people on the ticket that, you know, you, the listener, may have never heard of, even if you're a highly engaged person. But you know that he's telegraphing to his supporters. And so those are some of the things we really need to look at, I think. Yeah, I, I don't really uh, agree with the notion that Trump's endorsement is totally meaningless. I think it's sort of a, and I've probably been victim of saying this at, at, at various points, but I, I think it's a little bit of a liberal fantasy that Trump doesn't matter anymore and his endorsement is barely worth the paper it's written on. Because in a lot of these races that you just mentioned, voters don't have some sophisticated opinion of the candidates, right? They're not paying attention at all. The only thing they may pay right. attention to is a write-up in their local paper or news website that says, hey, Trump endorsed this person. Well, they know who Donald Trump is. That may be the only data point they get whatsoever before they go into the voting booth in a Republican primary, which gives that person a huge advantage. They're given, whether or not you love or hate Donald Trump's brand, that person gets a brand attached to them that gives them a lot of notoriety. So it is scary. And you mentioned Bannon, adopting this precinct strategy, I I probably will regret saying this, but I intermittently will listen to Bannon's War Room, his podcast, to hear how the MAGA alt-right is thinking about politics. And he just said the other day on his podcast, you know, we're going to get hundreds or maybe he said thousands of school board leaders elected across the country. Steve Bannon isn't sitting there obsessing over 2024 He's obsessing over a grassroots takeover of our political system. And the so-called pro-democracy side 
is not even in the game. I mean, if people think there are big national organizations who have a highly sophisticated strategy to prevent school boards around the country from falling into MAGA hands, they're wrong. There are people focused on it, but I would say it's it's uncoordinated, they're late to the game, and it's a full-on crisis. What do you, am, I, am I wrong about that, Lucy? I'm happy for you to, to, to totally disagree with that, but I, I would say that the pro-democracy side is less organized and totally behind the curve when it comes to going toe-to-toe with the MAGA folks at the grassroots in these races. I wish I could disagree with it because that would be good news for democracy, but I completely agree with it. You are completely right about that. And, and one of the ways that, you know, it's obvious is that the Republican primary voters, so the base of people who choose who the Republican nominee is, has constricted. And at this point, I've fielded a lot of polls in battleground states. Probably around in general, you can expect that about a third of Republican primary voters will say that Joe Biden is the rightfully elected president. A third. That means that two thirds of people who are going to the polls or sending in their mail-in ballots believe that Trump, the election was stolen from Trump. So do those people, are they radicalized and highly motivated to support wacko candidates like Carrie Lake? Yes, they are. They absolutely are. And you're right that, that unfortunately, the pro-democracy side is behind the, the, the curve here. And, you know, they were not paying attention to state legislative races ahead of redistricting, which means that redistricting, which happens every 10 years, was happening basically in many places at the direction of Republican-controlled state legislatures. They now have baked in favorable districts for the next 10 years. They're not, unfortunately, Democrats in many states are not even recruiting candidates for the state legislative races where they have D plus districts. That's very shocking. But those state legislatures are the people who are going to decide in 2024 which slate of electors to send to Congress. So, so it, it is, unfortunately, a lot of this is, is structural. And, and some of that just comes from the legacy of conservative political orientation and republicanism, which is a focus on federalism and an idea that that's local government and government close to we, the people, to you, the people, us, the people, is the best form of government. And so this is a this is a systems issue where Democrats are focused on a top down approach. Like, is there a piece of federal legislation that can solve this? And Republicans are focused on local and state solutions, which when it translates to democracy writ large, is is really a problem for us now as, as we look to maintain our democratic norms and and keep this republic going in the way we want it to in coming years. Uh, Lucy, I really want to footstop that point that you made. You are a leading political strategist. You go to these swing states. You've been on the ground. You talk to the candidates. And what you are seeing is that the, the MAGA side of the Republican Party is executing a pretty efficient and effective takeover from the ground up. And they're doing it all around the country. One of our listeners, Rudy, asks, who are the pro-democracy people? And I I would define the pro-democracy side as those Democrats 
and disaffected Republicans who don't believe that the 2020 election was stolen, who believe in a peaceful transfer of power, and who also want our leaders to abide by the Constitution. A pretty straightforward rubric. And right now, those folks look like they're on the losing side or are on the path to the losing side. I mean, the Democrats after Trump took the White House, the Senate, the House. Uh, you know, Trump was a, a, a three-way loser. He lost all of those things. But, uh, but I wouldn't say that it was some resounding victory or there was a huge mandate that Joe Biden and the Democrats had coming in. In fact, if you look at the data, Biden won the presidency because of 58,000 votes in three key battleground states. But if he hadn't gotten those votes, very likely would not have won the presidency. Trump would have had a second term. So it's a very slim victory margin. And right now, it sounds like you're saying that on the ground, it looks like the winds are, are, are at sort of uh, the backs of the MAGA candidates at the moment, at least in the midterms. Yeah, I mean, I think to answer Rudy's question, I would say, of course, by and large, I, the Democrats right now are operating as a pro-democracy party. I would say the pro-democracy people are the operative class and the grass chops and volunteers and voters who are working to say, okay, the most important thing is sustaining our democracy, right? And we're going mm -hmm. to even put party identification aside for a minute because yes, you maybe you're a Republican, maybe you're a Democrat, you know, you're not going to get democratic control of all of these state legislatures. So what can you do to ensure that on that fateful day ahead of, you know, in 2024, that, that the norms of our democracy that we've expected to be respected and held up for our entire nation's history will be held up. And so I think of the pro-democracy people as the people who are really on the ground doing that work to try to bring together those non-traditional coalitions of people. I mean, groups like Renew America have done that. Groups like Country First, Adam Kinzinger's group are, are doing that. It's a real cross-section of, of voters and backgrounds. Now, I'm not a sports fan myself, but I luckily or unluckily for me, married a New England Patriots fan. And there was a Super Bowl where Tom, Ooh, they I'm lost. I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they lost. And, and Tom Brady's supermodel wife, Giselle, gave an interview where she was defending why they had lost. And she said, my husband can't throw and catch the ball at the same time. And while I'm not a, <laughs> a football watcher, I didn't see that, that quote. That's, that's, that, wow. that, that metaphor rings so true because a lot of the work, I think the pro-democracy people, and I'm not here to bash Democrats. I want to be allies with Democrats. I want to be allies with anyone who will work to uphold our democracy. But the my husband can't throw and catch the ball. That's how I feel sometimes working in some of these battleground states, right? Because we need Democrats as and, and their infrastructure and their you know party largesse to be to also be focused in on have their eyes trained on where these fights really, really are, and and not get distracted by by things that are not related to the actual levers. Of, of of meaningful outcomes in in the next election cycle. Well, let's talk about that next cycle, twenty twenty four. A lot of our listeners, you know, when we publish this later, uh, that listen to the 
to the pre-tape of this, Lucy, will go into our conversation wanting no discussion of Trump in 2024. We want to bury our heads in the sand. It's over. He's in the past. Let's forget about him. Yet as recently as a couple of days ago, we saw another news story that advisors close to Trump are saying he's very eager to announce that he's running in 2024. He has considered announcing as soon as the 4th of July. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. But I've had a lot of other folks in our space who, like you and I, are day-to-day involved in American politics say, I don't think he's going to do it. I don't think he's going to do it. And And I've never had that perspective. In fact, my perspective has always been, I don't see how he says no to the prospect. Donald Trump has always eagerly welcomed any potential spectacle. And he knows that entering the 2024 race, whether he stays in it or not, will drive Democrats crazy and it will capture massive public attention. And and he has a really hard time saying no to anything that could turn out to be a major spectacle. So it seems like inevitably we're careening towards some form of a 2024 presidential race that starts earlier than any of us would like it to. What's your take? Well, Miles, you you know the man. You've been in rooms with him. You know better than than I certainly about how his mind works. Um, so so I would say your take is worth its weight in gold. But I I would say that that he almost has to run. He almost has to, uh, as our as our friend George Conway has said publicly many times. You know, he has to run to stay out of jail, right? There are so many reasons that Donald Trump has to run in 2024. And I'm going to I'm going to win a lot of enemies by saying this. But but I actually feel like based on how unready Democrats are ahead of 2024 and how badly things have gone for them in the in the post 2020 glow as as the rubber has hit the road. I actually feel like in some ways it would be better for Democrats if Trump were at the top of the ticket in 2024 than than a Ron DeSantis or a Josh Hawley. Because what has happened in the last eight years, let's say, is that those other Republican candidates have learned that they, too, can also pursue a strategy of a cult of personality and a casting aside of our democratic norms. But the thing that to me makes them far more dangerous than Trump is that unlike Trump, they have an enormous amount of impulse control. And so I think that they can be much, much more effective autocrats. The thing thing that arguably in some way saved us from Trump was not only Adults in the room, you know, most recently adults in the room like Bill Barr and Ivanka Trump, but previously mm-hmm. adults in the room like you, Miles. But the other thing that saved us was that he's all over the place. He's impulsive. He, you know, can't stay trained on, on something. And I, I worry that we could not we could not count on that, unfortunately, with a Ron DeSantis or, or some of these other folks who who have those aspirations. Uh, that's look, I I agree with that take, Lucy. M- maybe minus the part that anyone would consider me an adult. Um, but it's, <laughs> um, it's interesting that you say that Democrats almost would benefit from having him at the top of the ticket. The one place I might take exception to that is is if Joe Biden does indeed run for reelection. Some polls in the past few months have showed that if Biden runs, uh, he would lose to Donald Trump 
in a rematch and no amount of hoping and wishing is going to necessarily change that. So I, I, I'd love to ask you, you know, we're both Republicans or former Republicans, um, you know, looking over at the Democratic side, if they really did want to beat Donald Trump or, or Ron DeSantis, who has the ability to do that over on the Dem side right now? How should they think about the primaries? Yeah, I think that they should be thinking about the primaries as an opportunity to clear the field and put forward some candidates who are as of yet unscathed by this era. So, you know, I would love to have the first woman elected president, but I don't think that this is Kamala's time, unfortunately. She has not been set up or supported by this administration in a way that would make that possible for her. I also think that that anyone who's been part of the Biden administration, no matter how dynamic they are, is going to have a lot of baggage. And ditto folks who've been the kind of loudest voices in Congress. I think that there are rising star Democrats who could kind of emerge and be fresh faces. I think someone like Mark Kelly, the junior senator from Arizona, is an example of someone who has that kind of dynamism and that ability to bring people together. I think we should be looking at Democrats who have been part of a purple wave in previously red states. Um, you know, we've we've got to make we've got to make the list, and and then it's it's really up to everyday voters to go out and and create a groundswell of of support and and capacity for some of those candidates. Well, I think Mark Kelly is a really interesting one to point to, and I haven't ha- heard a lot of people saying that he's, of course, in a tough fight right now to get reelected as the Democratic senator from Arizona, but is frankly a great name of a unifying bipartisan leader in the Democratic Party who could emerge and bring a lot of Republicans with him. Um, yeah. One of the polls that we saw not too long ago in Arizona showed that close to one in five Republicans in the state would either consider voting for Democrat Mark Kelly or were open to it. That's a pretty high potential defection margin. And it speaks to the fact that Kelly is kind of a unifying leader. And by the way, he's a former astronaut and, you know, member of the military who flew, I think, 38 combat missions. Um, he's a badass. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, he's amazing. People like that. He's amazing. People like that really should be encouraged to step forward in the Democratic Party and and lead against some of the craziness that we're seeing in our political system. So I, I hope you're right there. I could make all kinds of liftoff jokes and space puns about Mark Kelly, but damn, I, I, I would love to see someone like that run for president in the Democratic Party in 2024. That's, that's a name that could compete against a Trump or any of these other uh, savvier successors that are trying to take the MAGA mantle. Um, I know we're getting close to time here. Uh, it would be a mistake for me not to ask you, Lucy, about the really important news that I saw yesterday, which is that Netflix is doing a live action version of Squid Game. Um, <laughs> and uh, that seems to be some sort of statement on our weird politics at the moment. <laughs> They're going to do a, a multi-million dollar competition where people uh, vie for money um, and in the TV show, I think they they risk their lives 
for the final pot. I doubt Netflix is going to kill the participants that don't succeed. Um, what's your hot take? I'm hoping you tell me. I've never even seen Squid Game. Miles, what are you I've, talking about? Miles, I've never even seen Squid Game. But I do know what it is because I saw an <laughs> SNL skit about it, which also could, could be a whole nother foray into our politics. <laughs> uh, well, well, tell me this, Lucy Caldwell. What gives you optimism? There's a lot to be pessimistic about in our politics. Uh, you have run a presidential campaign. You've been in the arena. You've got lots of things that you could probably say to make us cynical about where, where we are at. What's giving you hope uh, when it comes to navigating out of this craziness that we still find ourselves in? You know, what's giving me hope is that I do think that this era has woken a lot of people up to the urgency of our times and the need to be really engaged. And and I think that while we're in a little bit of a a stalemate right now in terms of how tribal people are and, and, and how hardened we can sometimes feel like our own views have been or, or the, the kind of positions and, and uh, stands of, of people in our lives. I do think that we're on the cusp of, of a moment where people can really come together and say, you know what, this is not working for me. We've, we've got to do something. We've got to do something different. And so I, I think I'm 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 cautiously optimistic that that something different could be around the corner. Well, I think that's a great note to end it on. And we all want to take your optimism through osmosis in this conversation, Lucy, and carry it with us. Uh, folks, if you're not following Lucy Caldwell on Twitter, make sure you are at Lucy M. Caldwell. She is one of the best minds in this space and someone who really can see over the trees about what's coming in our political system. So Lucy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Miles. This was really fun. And thank you all for listening to Speaking Up. I'm excited to welcome another friend and political commentator later this week for a conversation about exactly what Lucy and I just finished discussing is how can we break out of the current craziness? So stay tuned for that announcement. And thank you again for joining us.